Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by the Ashland University Low Res MFA, where our accomplished faculty help you find your voice and complete your degree at your own pace. Learn more and enroll today at ashland.edu. And we're brought to you by Mindfair Books, located inside Oberlin, Ohio's iconic Ben Franklin Variety Store. With a broad mix of new and used books, Mindfair serves academic and general interest readers and collectors alike. Mindfair Books, an investment in knowledge always pays the best interest. Stop by or shop online at benfranklinoberlin.com. I'm a little obsessed lately with time travel. Not with the physics of it. I'm not taking notes on Star Trek episodes or searching the dark web for plutonium to fuel my hidden DeLorean. But as I hover on the cusp of a certain midlife birthday... I do sometimes find myself knee-deep in nostalgia. As most regular listeners know, we recently sold the house where I grew up, and I've been sifting through its contents. Programs from ballet recitals, pressed flowers from homecoming corsages, faded photographs of friends with whom I've fallen out of touch. Most of the paper memories are hitting the recycling bin, but there's no way to eliminate the wistfulness that heart near to bursting feeling I get thinking about how quickly time has passed, how much time I've wasted, and eerily, how much time any of us has left. There's a line in the old holiday film, It's a Wonderful Life, where this cranky neighbor yells out to Jimmy Stewart's character that he should quit wasting time and just go ahead and kiss Donna Reed already. When Jimmy Stewart hesitates, the neighbor yells, Nah, youth is wasted on the young. As a child, I never knew what that meant. It seemed like such a funny thing to say. But now, I get it. When my kiddos were babies, I would have paid $100 for one decent, uninterrupted night of sleep. Now, as I'm helping my oldest pack for her first year at college... I'd pay that same hundred bucks for one more chance to hold my baby girl again. And I know I can't. It's time. It's time for my nearly grown-up girl to make her way in the world. But I understand that desire to stop the clocks and go back and visit those moments we've lost. Our guest this week grapples with fleetingness and nostalgia in her latest novel. She asks... What if we could go back, just for a moment, and experience it all over again? What might be better? And what might even be worse? Eden Lepucky is the author of the novels California, Woman Number 17, and Time's Mouth, which is brand new and out today. 
Her novels have been bestsellers and award winners coast to coast. California was a New York Times bestseller, and Woman Number 17 was named a Best Book of the Year by the Washington Post. Eden created the popular Mothers Before page on Instagram and edited a book inspired by that project, which was published in 2020. She's a graduate of Oberlin College and the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop, and her writing has been published in Esquire, the New York Times Magazine, and McSweeney's, among other publications. The Los Angeles Times named her a face to watch, and her story, People in Hell Want Ice Water, is available as an Audible original. Eden Lepucky, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's totally an honor for me to be chatting with you because full disclosure to our guests, you're not just this like awesome writer person out in the world writing bestsellers. You're also my teacher, <laughs> or at least you were. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have the... I have the honor of being your teacher, Anne-Marie. The dubious honor of reading my pages and listening to my excuses about why they're not on time or when I spell something wrong in the first paragraph. So when I was in graduate school, you were one of my favorite readers, both for putting up with my shite, but also just inspiring me to dig deep in what's possible on the page. And so it's such a treat to today be digging deep into your writing where you spelled everything right. And we're we're just going to talk about this new book, Time's Mouth, that you that you have out in the world. It's, um, it's really exciting. So I'm so glad you're here. But some of our listeners will not have had the good fortune to be in a writing class with you. And I would love it if you could just begin... Uh, by telling us some of your story. Sure. Let's see. Where shall we begin? I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and I always wanted to be a writer. I sort of didn't have any other uh, career aspirations. I always was a huge reader, um, and that, you know, I think like a lot of writers, um, that made me want to write. Um, I went to college in Ohio at Oberlin. And not too far from you, Anne Marie, and um, and continued. I studied English and creative writing, and after college, I worked at bookstores full time. Then I went to graduate school, and I just kept writing, and you know, wrote a novel that didn't sell. Then picked myself up the off the floor and wrote another one, um, and that one did get published. It was called California. Um, And then I wrote another book called Woman Number 17. Um, And my new book, uh, Time's Mouth, uh, it took me, let's see, oh, seven years to write. Um, But I will say between having zero books and having this third novel come out, um, I had three children as well. So I've got a pretty chaotic uh, household as I try to balance, you know, being a parent with writing books. And yeah, this new book, it took me a long time and it was not easy to do. I think I rewrote it probably, probably a hundred rewrites and five solid real revisions. Um, And so I don't know, I kind of can't believe that it's, I don't know, finally here in the world. And, you know, I guess that's my life story. I love it. So I have... A myriad, myriad questions. Yes. What one is 
What is the novel in the drawer? The one that didn't sell? Oh, that book. That book is called The Book of Deeds. It is about a teenage girl whose parents send her to live with her her sort of unstable sister so they can live in an Airstream trailer in Malibu. Um, and she and her best friend become obsessed with this 19th century rebellion in downtown LA that I just made up. It's like a group of factory girls who like kill everybody. I think there's some cool stuff in that book, but it was kind of a mess at the same time now that I'm looking back on it. Ugh. <laughs> That's like my least favorite part of the writing gig. Ugh. If I if I didn't have to feel like I was writing into the doubt. So I came through nonfiction where you write you sort of sell the idea. A book proposal, yes, it's like 100 pages, but but it's 100 pages of like, this is what my book's going to be about. Here are the people who are going to read it. And so you sell the idea. And then someone says yes to the idea. And then you're writing the book into a yes. You know, you yes. pitched it and you're writing it into. And there was something first off so fast because if someone says, okay, yes, can you get it done by this time? You've got a yes and you've got a deadline. And I was just like, just writing through. Um writing into the doubt and writing into the unknown and these books that you just hundreds and hundreds of pages. And as you're saying, rewrite after rewrite, only be, to be told, eh, I don't think so. What else you got? <laughs> and you're like, this is years of my life. I would love it if, if fiction, um, if, if fiction would operate on that, sell an idea. And I know, I know like, George Saunders can probably sell an idea. Yeah. Like you can get to a place where you can sell on spec, but I'm not yeah, there. Yeah, it's so tough. You start to wonder, why am I, what is compelling me to do this laborious, deep, profound, just heart-wrenching work, you know, just for as a hobby <laughs> until somebody <laughs> tells you they want to publish it. It is, really is nuts. And I will say I did sell a book on spec. My second book I sold I didn't even, I had like 60 pages and I didn't know how it was going to end. They bought it. But you know what? That's not what happened for my next book. So it doesn't, it's always, I think this idea, this, we have this um, vision of one's career or life. Like if once this happens, all will be set. Once X happens, then Y will occur. And I have learned in writing life and in all kinds of other things that you can't really guarantee anything. Okay, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. And you're not going to be an inspirational speaker on my circuit. Oh, no, my I'll, God. I'll I'm telling you, I had a comeback story, though. I, <laughs> sold, I finally sold the book, and it was, in the end, the way it was meant to be. So right. I learned that as well. <laughs> okay, that gives me hope. Well, let's talk a little bit about this magical book that took a few years and has its, like, success story because it's out here now. Um, the poet Maggie Smith was on the show a few months ago, and she, in her most recent book, talked about this refrain, like, every book begins with an unanswerable question. And I think there are a lot of questions pulsing at the heart of Time's Mouth, your your newest novel. You know, what if you could go back in time and experience your family secrets? Would it make things better? 
Would it make you better or worse? Can we ever really escape the legacy of our upbringing? One of the great things about being a novelist is you don't actually have to answer the questions that are beating and pulsing at the heart of your book, but I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit anyway and um, at least ask you to comment on you know some of this. So for folks who haven't read it in Time's Mouth, there are a few individual characters who can transcend time. You know, they could be both here, we could be in this podcasting room here, and also somewhere else at our junior prom or at the first time we were on the t-ball court. Like, we can be in both places, and that that's the effect that these guys, the, the characters in, in Eden's book have. They can't alter what happened. They can't run into traffic and save someone from an accident. They can't even speak. They can only witness. There's real power in this, right? But there's also... Um, there's also pain. I'm of an age where I feel like a lot of the best fun parts of my life are behind me. So I'm very wistful and nostalgic. In your book, you write something about like, it's as though all those versions of yourself still exist. And we sold, recently we sold my childhood home and I have the contents of like half that house in my spare bedroom. I, I just understand the um, the desire for time travel. I'm also a sucker for time travel movies and books, I can't help myself in wanting to go back. And it made me wonder, like, I know that time travel doesn't exist, exist for us. Is there a difference between time travel and just like aggressive memory? I like aggressive memory. That's a wonderful <laughs> phrase. That's what I should have called the book. <laughs> you know, it's a good question. I mean, I always say that parenting, there's a great poem that I have. Someone showed me this poem when my youngest was a baby. And I, somebody listening to this, hopefully will tell me what the poem is. And it essentially talks about, you know, being with your child, doing a kind of time travel. It was also Celeste Ng in one of her two novels mentioned something similar, where you're looking at your child and you see them in three different, I don't want to use the word modalities, <laughs> at the same time. So you see them in the present as they are right now, but you can't help looking at them. You can't help but see their younger self, and you can't help but propel yourself in the future to what they'll be like when they're older. Um, so I think as a parent, you're kind of time traveling all the time. Um, and as you said, Anne-Marie, as you get older, there's a lot of backward-looking um, and when you're a lot younger, I think there's a lot of forward looking. So it's, you know, everyone is always like, be here now. And you can have your bumper stickers and your yoga teacher saying that. But I think the mind is so frisky and nimble and also stubborn and won't really stay in one place. So in effect, it's sort of like, well, what is the present exactly since we're so often kind of moving around in time all, all the time? Um, but yeah, we can't, we can't go back to the future. <laughs> Although I too love, like I, Interstellar was one of the early, also oh, another early inspiration for yeah. this book. I had my daughter who's now almost eight. She was a brand new baby. And I had like my first cocktail post childbirth. Um, and my husband had made me like a sidecar and we watched Interstellar. And I just was sobbing during the whole movie. And it's not, there's no coincidence that soon after I started thinking about this book, um, just all those those desires to connect over and over again with people that we've, the connection either is lost or is changed just by the nature of growing up and growing older. Yeah, isn't that true? 
So I've read all three of your novels, uh, your your debut, California, your second one, um, Woman Number 17, and now this one. And I've noticed that in in all three, I'm I'm sitting with characters um, who are in some kind of trouble, right? In one, it might be a, a post-apocalyptic world. We're in a cabin in the woods. In another, it's you know could be in the Hollywood Hills on the heels of a relationship that's that's ending. Um, or I could be you know on a bus in search of a psychic to explain my child's time travel. So you have this great way of just putting us in scene where, um, one, the characters are under duress, and two, the characters convince me, the reader, that if only we can get to X, everything will be better, right? If only we can get to um, the psychic, or if only we can hire the right nanny, or if only we can get from our cabin to this commune, like, everything's going to be better. And all along the way, like, you have me believing them, like, I'm trusting them. Yes, 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 just get to the compound, hire the nanny, and, and get the hallucinations explained by the psychic. Yes, 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 it will all be fine. And, and simultaneously, while you've got me along for the ride with his characters, there's also this, like, nagging voice in my readerly brain that's like, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that that commune's going to solve their problems. I don't know. So you're really great at just, like, sinking me in to chaos uh, making me trust these characters and then just like pulling the rug out from under us and and then somehow like also sprinkling it with hope. So like what is it about you um, that makes you such a chaos monkey um, of a writer? <laughs> First we have aggressive memory. Now we have chaos monkey. You are really bringing the hits today. <laughs> That'll be your memoir. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny because I'm such the opposite in my my personal life. You know, I like a pretty quiet life. Um, I don't like a lot of drama. So that's funny to hear you say that. Two things that are coming to mind. One is character is really the most important thing to me. So I, I love sentence making. That's probably second because I just think it's fun to read prose that's pretty. Um, but I really want people to, as a, I'll say, as a writer, I want to believe that the characters I'm writing about are real, even if I'm fully aware that they're totally made up. I want to be in their consciousness. I want to be in their body. I want to really understand what they're afraid of, what they expect to happen versus what will actually happen. Um I just want to see the world as they do. And so a lot of the work I'm doing is just being in their perspective. Um, and the other thing is that I can't really write about nothing. I actually love books where characters are just sort of talking and thinking and then they drink some coffee. Um, I actually, <laughs> I'm not being facetious. I do deeply, sincerely like reading those kinds of books. Um, but I just don't understand how anybody writes that kind of book. Like, how do you write without the armature of scene and plot? And I also really like plot-driven books as well. Um, so my sweet spot is like Margaret Atwood or Jennifer Egan, um, somebody who can really marry the two together, um, where you have characters who feel deeply conjured and realistic and also something is happening and there's stakes and maybe there's chaos monkeys flying around. Um, and I do read quite a bit of like, not quite a bit, but I love like detective novels and crime fiction. Um, I think because especially noir fiction, like Ross McDonald, I love the pairing of like really sharp crystalline, like just 
beautiful prose paired with like just like this plot that just starts on page one and just goes boom, boom, boom. Um, so I think my work is informed by that. Like, I would love to have my characters do nothing and just think, but I don't know how to do that. Like, I love a Jonathan Franzen scene where somebody, I think in the new book, um, in Crossroads, there's a character who's like, I think he's like writing a thank you card. That's the scene. And that serves as the structure for like, you know, 20 pages of exposition about his his life. I love reading that, but I just don't know how to do it. Um, and I think when it's done badly, it's boring. And I really like hate the idea of my readers being bored. Like you're going to take that. There's so many other things you could be doing. And if you're going to read my book, I want you emotionally engaged and I want you to feel entertained. So I can't have a character just writing a thank you card. They have to be on the bus going to see the psychic. (laughs) Well, I don't think you bore us at all. So you're doing what you do very well. And it makes me think about you again you've been my teacher. And one of my favorite things, I have lots of favorite things about you, but one of my favorite things you do is you're able to look at a story on both a micro and macro level. And as readers, uh, sometimes we're like hovering on the sentence and we're not able to like step back to the big picture or we're, we're thinking about the big picture and we're missing the sentences. But you have this capability when you're, when you've at least critiqued my own writing to be like, this is what's happening on a sentence level and a paragraph level on a scene level. And this is where I see it fitting into the whole. So I wondered if we could, we could play um, Eden, the, the writing teacher and layer that on top of like Eden, the writer and do like one look at your micro sentence level thing. And then one look at a macro, if you'll play along with me here. Make sense? Sure, sure. I'm a little <laughs> bit afraid, but also yeah, intrigued. <laughs> so I thought I would pull this sentence just on a micro level. You've got this sentence, time meant nothing in the face of pain. I wrote it down and I highlighted it like time meant nothing in the face of pain. This is a statement that Ray, one of the characters in your book, makes kind of midway through when he's thinking back on a on a woman he's lost. Um, And I was just thinking about we have all of us endured this collective loss and pain with this pandemic. You know, the way that 2019 feels like a decade ago, and it's really not that long ago. You know, like like I'm thinking about like the relationship of time to pain and even grief. Um, But maybe I'll, I'll ask you to like do a micro look like. What do you think about when you read that sentence, time meant nothing in the face of pain? Oh, I'm so profound. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Um, no, I, I will say I think it's true. I think that is a particularly – it's true for Ray, and it, it who is still grieving his wife's abandonment of him and his child and still trying to process that. Um, but it's also true for me. I mean, I'll think of things that happened years ago, and I can, like – tears can still sting my eyes over it. Um, And like you said about grief, I haven't lost anyone close to me, but I know people who have, they always say, you know, grief isn't linear. One day you'll feel close to fine. And the next day, suddenly you're plunged into mourning somebody you lost decades ago. Um, And I think that's feels emotionally true for humanity. That line in particular, I recall I learned so much from my editor, Dan Smetanka. He is just, I was going to say God, but that sounds crazy. Um, He's just such a talented editor. And I feel like it changed my teaching also, because 
one of the things he kept saying to me was he kept being like, what does this mean? Meaning what does, who cares about time travel unless it means something? He was like, cool time travel, but like, why is it here? And so he really wanted me to have these moments where I had the characters kind of get deeper into their consciousness and unpack like how they're all dealing with the passage of time. So I actually really remember having, I wrote that little passage in that line for Dan because he kept being like, tell me what time travel means in this book beyond like, oh, it's a fun little thing that your characters can do. Um, and so he taught me a lot about how um, kind of clarifying the deeper subject. That's what I use in my writing classes. Um, it's another word for theme, but sounds less like seventh grade honors English. Um, <laughs> just like not what not what happens in your book or your story, but what it's about. Um, what meaning is made, to quote Flannery O'Connor, like, as you move through the story, meaning is accumulated. So clarifying for yourself, and definitely not in the first, second, or third draft. On those drafts, I, I say, just be with your characters, be in the images that are exciting you, just see what happens. Because if you do it too early, I think the work can become constrained. But later on, as you're starting to revise, kind of considering what the work is about can lead you to make the right choices. And that was actually a really instrumental moment for me in revising and like being like, well, what is the deeper subject of my book? What do I mean to say? What does each character feel about their pain? Because they all are dealing with it in these different ways. And when I had that as kind of a organizing thematic principle, I was able to do a lot more. Yeah, no, I found this line fascinating, especially thinking about how it operates through different characters. So it's, again, said by Ray. Ray is someone who's a character not uh, gifted with the ability to transcend time. He he himself does not have that gift. So for him, time meaning nothing in the face of pain is this like decades-long longing to understand the woman who left him and the pain he's endured raising his daughter on his own. But then I also thought about the, the women characters who are able to time travel and what... Um, time travel in particular means in the face of their pain? Am I time traveling to try to heal and understand, which is, I think, um, what Opal's doing, right? I'm, I'm, I'm traveling back to try to come to terms with this loss, to, to understand it, to understand, in her case, the mother who abandoned her and her dad. Um, that's different, I think. Time meaning nothing in the face of pain is different for Ursa, who sometimes is traveling back to hold her baby and to smell his, you know, sweet, buttery softness, and but is also at other times traveling back for vengeance, traveling back, you know, to in some ways create fear and unrest. And she's traveling back to, to pain and, and actually fomenting more of it. So I really appreciated the way that this line works if I look at it in terms of different characters that time doesn't mean anything in the face of their pain and the way that it manifests in the characters is different. Again, not first draft stuff, but somewhere in in draft 97, I think um, (laughs) you you must have hit on that. Uh, Totally. And I, you know, it's funny. I think I actually always think that fiction writers need to be a little bit stupid. Um, You know, there's some, I have met some very, 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 very smart people. And often those people are better at nonfiction. (laughs) Because in nonfiction, I I tend to believe that you need to sort of 
come to the deeper subject in an earlier draft and sort of let those connections happen in the writing process. And, you know, or if you're so brilliant, sometimes you have to put the brilliance aside in those early drafts and just exist in the swamp of the fiction (laughs) and just sort of let it let it let those ideas come together. And then later, you're like, Oh, my God, it was here all along. And I just didn't see it. And at first, I like to be willfully blind to those connections. And then later, I seek them out. Um, But yeah, I, I did not. I knew that Ursa was the villain. She was always the villain. She was always going to be the villain. I was very excited to write a villain. Extremely hard to write a villain, I will say. Um, But it all has to do with how she deals with things that happened to her and things that she did and what she won't face or will face and wanting to purposely screw things up further if she can't get what she wants. Um, And I loved when I realized, and I should have realized it sooner, that she and Opal, although they have the same gift, they use it in wildly different ways. And that was really interesting for me. And obviously, I think when you read it the first time, you get it. (laughs) It's not that hard to make that connection. But when you're in the depths of writing, it takes a long time to be able to articulate it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, you mentioning Ursa as a villain gets me to the macro level of thing I want to talk about, which is the way that mothers and motherhood and, and, and parenthood function in your novels. But I do want to be clear. I'm not asking you to talk about the balance of being a writer and a mom. It's not that I don't want to talk about that. I just really dislike when interviewers only seem to ask that of female novelists like I've never heard anybody ask Jonathan Franzen although I don't think he, he has doesn't children, have kids <laughs> or Michael Michael uh, Chabin or George Saunders like how do you balance being a a dad and a writer like they just no one does that and so I like I just wanted to be clear that's not um where I'm going with this macro um question though I'm you know obviously you get to talk about it if you'd like but I wanted to talk about mothers and motherhood more generally so like in all of your books, I feel like there are, are themes and um, pregnancy as and motherhood as um, threats to threats to order or um, suffering that must be endured. You know, in one of them, a, a, a mom describes motherhood as like quote unrelenting, boring, <laughs> and painful. Um, yet, so that's like on an individual level, right? But. When viewed in the collective, whether it's a commune of women attempting to care for children after the apocalypse or, you know, in the face of the apocalypse or simply a housewife hiring a nanny or in in this book, we do get um, elements of of kind of both of those things. Like I I get the sense that um, uh, being a parent is is maybe too much for one person and almost too much for everyone. And that women in your books and and men have difficult relationships with parenthood. So when you're talking about you know building a family and um, uh, 
how family kind of happens in your books. Like, what are you thinking about when you're writing these women and exploring, in particular, motherhood? Ooh, that was a good question. You know, when I wrote Cal, I wrote California both in three stages. I was not pregnant. I wrote half, most of it pregnant, and I finished and revised it as a mother. So I kind of wow. had three feelings. But obviously, must the idea of having a fam, starting a family, was in my mind when I started drafting the book. Otherwise, I would not have had a character who was pregnant at the end of the world. Clearly, that was something on my mind. Um, and then by the time Woman Number 17 came out, I had two kids, and now I have three kids with Time's Mouth. So my everyday experience of life, most of it is about parenting. I have my time carved out to work, and then rest of the time I am trying to, you know, keep three people alive. <laughs> and, you know, I... I think I don't write about my own life like I don't write auto fiction and it's everything is sort of sl slant wise about my life I guess but it is what is kind of taking up all my mental space all the time and so it's just going to be in the material for the, you know for the foreseeable future it's going to be the material and I also think it's just so like rich it's so dramatically rich and emotionally rich and I think there's sort of two feelings I have about parenthood all the time. One is that I do think it's sometimes, it is relentless. It can be very boring and it can be painful depending on what's happening. Um, I think the actual premise of parenting is like a deeply, if you do it well, it is painful because you are raising these people who you love so fiercely and you're raising them to leave you. Um, and that's, the successful model, right? And so it's always about this like letting go process that feels very difficult and beautiful at the same time. And so that's great for fiction for me, right? Because it's like these competing, these tensions. Um, I also think parenting is beautiful and fun and fascinating. And I want to value all those different rich experiences in fiction. So I think that's why there's so much like different kind of feelings about about parenting in my books. Um, and I just think it's important that I, I assume that there's a lot of parents and mothers in particular reading my work and I want them to feel like, oh yeah, this is a this is a dramatic version of parenting. Certainly we don't I know most people are not reading from, you know, recovering from being in a cult or know a time traveler or have, you know, their mother abandoned them in the middle of the night because they thought they were possessed. Um, but I think some of that everyday transcendence and those existential elements of parenting, they can recognize in my work. And that's important to me that they feel like, oh, yeah, this is this is actually deeply what it is like to be a mom. That should be the project of fiction, really, to capture life in all of its complicated glory. Well, you do such a good job of allowing this everyday experience to then be transposed onto and kind of an otherworldly set. I'm thinking of Frida and Cal in California, your first book, when, you know, the, the big picture is like, how will we eat and how will we make bread and how will we survive in the wild? But then you um, layer on top of that and what happens if I'm pregnant? We were make we were making a go of it, but now what? So then you take this, it's not an ordinary experience, but a you know a, a everyday experience that that many of your readers will 
I've not lived through an apocalypse, although we came close in 2020. Um, a little 2016. Okay, I've, I'm quasi. I've been apocalypse adjacent, but but I have um, have been pregnant, and that was my way in to to that um, setting that was otherwise very um, strange. And then in this book, I got to thinking about like. <sighs> What is parenting if not like a version of of time travel itself, right? I mean, there's like the literal repeat that you take your children to stuff that you also went through that your parents took you to, right? Like there, there, you do sometimes feel like you're on this hamster wheel of of my daughter was recently, my middle daughter was recently in the in the middling play Bye Bye Birdie, which uh-huh. I was in the middling play of Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> So it's like I went and watched this this deeply average. I love my kid, and she was incandescent. But this deeply average play that I was also in that my parents came and watched and sat through uh, thirty years ago. So there there is some time travel involved, where you'll be looking at your kid, and they're just a seventh grader, and their friends are being terrible, and you're having a conversation as a mom, but you're remembering what it felt to be a seventh grader, and just. Why is it so unfair and why are they treating me like that? So there is an element, I think, of time travel involved in in all parenting. Definitely. And that I hadn't thought of that before, but you're right. Like I have I'm about to redo re-enter seventh grade myself with my oldest is going to junior high next year. Um so and I have definitely thought a lot about that. Like one of the reasons why I feel so trepidatious about his experience is that I remember my own and it doesn't feel that long ago, even though it was quite a long time ago. And I look at my daughter who's seven and she's some of her kind of quiet pastimes bring me right back to what that was like for me. And it's sort of, it's definitely for me, one of my, you know, seventh grade horrors aside, that's one of my favorite things about being a parent is get to, you get to do it again. And you get to have a different, you get to see it from another angle, which I think is really cool. Yeah. A number of your characters kind of reflect on on what it means to be a parent. Um, I mean, even I think this is your villain talking when Ursa, Ursa has these moments of I mean, kind of loveliness where I understand her. I think she says like motherhood and loss, loss and motherhood, they went hand in hand. Your child isn't who they were the day before. They're slipping through your fingers. They can walk and now they can drive. And if you're lucky, they survive. They grow up and move on from you. It feels like this like bad bargain with the gods, right? Like if you do it really well and love and care for them, they will leave. <laughs> yeah, it's built into the contract, you know. You're it's mm-hmm. like the uh what do they say about the iPhone? The the obsolesc- obsolescence is built into the product or whatever. Um that's me. I'm an iPhone. I'm like an iPhone <laughs> from 1999. You're not going to want me pretty soon. The other thing is I had Ursa, no she was always my villain, but like she was also even though she was my villain, she was also my character, right? So some of her is me. Everybody in the book is me and not me at the same time, I guess. And I wanted her to do some pretty reprehensible things. Um, but I also wanted you to see where her pain was coming from, where her longing was. And I think connecting with the villain is in reading just like a true pleasure, right? You get that little zing of like, oh my God, I feel the same way the villain does. It's such a great little feeling. Um, and mm-hmm. my oldest, who's the one who's going into seventh grade, I had been like railing against like Disney, how all the villains are always these older women and like, 
older women are usually not responsible for most of the world's ills. It's and he was like, "Mom, your book mm-hmm. is like a Disney movie because you have an older you hate older women." <laughs> and it stung so bad. I was like, "Why are you so smart? You be quiet." Um, so that also inspired me to make sure that she had like emotional depth that she wasn't just like a plot point of doing bad things for no reason, just because she was evil. Um, So that helped too. And also I will say that that was another dance Matanka, my editor being like, put in more about what this means. Like she's reuniting. I won't tell you what's happening, but something is happening that's big and it's kind of giving her a seismic, she's having a seismic moment internally. So she needs to think about parenthood and time passing. So let her think about it. Let her go into her brain there and have some response to the to the action. It can't just be the action. It's not enough. Well, I also like the way, so you help us to understand the villain characters and see their motivations. And that definitely, like I could understand that she was operating from a place of grief and loss. Like that was, like I, I, I had a way in with with Ursa. And also you you give us that way in, even with the people who are like parenting better and doing the best they can, we also like get some scratching at the surface of how they're messing it up. You know, um, I think Opal's re- thinking about her father and, and Opal is one of our time travel characters and she wants to get back to understand her mom and her dad's like, mm, let's not do that. Let's not go back and like open up these wounds. And Opal's thinking to herself, you know, was this what he thought a good parent did protect your child by hiding everything by treating your kid like she was the center of the universe he wanted so badly for opal to be well adjusted that he shut out anything unsavory or difficult i mean this 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 desire to protect our kids like it's again i do think that's baked into the co- the contract they they give you a baby and they're like take this home and protect it and feed it and 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 make sure it's safe and so as a parent we do want to do that, but it reminds me of that line. If we're going to do Disney, although Pixar, I never know if they're the same or different. But like that line that like Dory says in Finding Nemo, the dad fish is like berating himself for like he's like, I promise that nothing would ever happen to him. And Dory, like our ultimate Shakespearean fool in that cartoon, she's like, Well, that's a funny thing to promise. If you, <laughs> if you promise that nothing will ever happen to him, then nothing will ever happen to him. And to be a parent is not to protect our children from the difficulties of the world, although we have to do that sometimes. It's to, you know, prepare them and arm them and and provide them with the tools they need to navigate those difficulties. And that's not always the same job. God, isn't parenting just the hardest? It's so – and I always feel like it's the most – interesting and most challenging thing that I do. And I write. I know that manual labor is much harder than writing books, but sometimes when I'm trying to write a book, I'm like pulling my hair out being like, how will I do this correctly? As you said, parenting, like that sort of dance you have to do between protecting them and preparing them. And when is, what do you, how do you know what, if you're doing the right thing at the right moment? And how do you know if you've properly prepared them and wanting them, you have to protect them to a certain point, but you have to, I mean, it's so hard to watch your child in pain. Like everybody at physical pain, emotional pain, emotional pain, especially when, you know, a friend does something really mean to them or they lose the thing they really wanted. I mean, it's so hard to have to witness that, but you just have to kind of bear witness to it and talk them through it. And it is so difficult and a lot of times when, you know, 
I, I don't tend to read a lot of parenting manuals or follow the Instagram people who are like the parenting gurus of the day most of the time because when something is really difficult at my house with a kid, I'm like, there is no pamphlet for how to work on this. I, like, <laughs> what is the speech that is required right now? I'm not sure. And I don't think one exists because it's just so difficult. And Ray in particular, you know, I wanted there to be a parent-child relationship in the book that was, for the most part, very positive. And I think all the parent-child relationships in the book have these moments of intense love. And you can see that all the parents are loving in the book, even even the villain. She has love for her child. But I wanted one where there was it was a stable, loving relationship and they could talk through things. But of course, even in those kind of parent-child relationships, and I have those relationships with my parents, I'm very lucky there still is strife. There's still misunderstanding. There's still these moments where you get mad at your parents for failing you in a particular way. And I guess at the heart, that's what any relationship really is, that you can't be perfect all the time. So that's what I was going for there. And my, again, my editor, Dan, you know, he kept being like, give us those, give us these moments of connection. He really loved like the father daughter stuff. And sometimes I was like, ah, I feel this is a little bit corny. <laughs> and I pulled back a couple times because I was like, this is too, this is too rah, rah, daddy daughter day. But I wanted to, I wanted to show a really good relationship and also how all those good relationships can have shadows. Well, you've definitely done that. Even when you've done, so like one of the ultimate villainous acts um, that I think is really in all of literature. Jacqueline Woodson talks about that, this and the, the idea of a, of a mother abandoning her child, right? This is just unthinkable. But you, when you talk about women who leave their children, at least in this book, you even help us to understand the context for why that would be the case. And on a number of occasions that I, you know, I understand it. I won't give too much away there, but there's definitely a part where a character named Cherry is just like imagining herself walking out the door, just like no, no purse, no money, no name, like walking out. And I was like, yes, I remember feeling like that. Like it's, it's, it's just exhausting. Um, so you really do capture that well. Thank you. I will say that, that I remember working and reworking that section because I think it's really hard. I mean, mothers do abandon their children. It's something that happens. And mothers also, I think abandoning has a, obviously a negative connotation. There are mothers who cannot participate in the daily lives of their children and are still present as mothers. Um, and I don't think we see enough stories like that in the world. Um, but when I was writing this, this was going to be an abandonment where she just disappeared and I had to lead up to that. I had to make it both. I had to make the stakes so high that would make her do that. I had to make it so that the reader would mourn that happening, but also on some level understand it. So one of the first things I did was dig into kind of a dual story. One is she's just a, she's lived her whole life in the woods with a bunch of kind of nutty women. She's really never left. So imagine going from that to living in 1980s LA, how hard that assimilation would be. I tried to think of it as like, a immigration story on steroids. And I thought a little bit about mm -hmm. my, my parents coming from like small town, New Jersey to LA in the eighties, which is not that on that level, but thinking about how it would be so hard to adapt to like a foreign life. And then the second thing was just digging into those early motherhood. Like I haven't slept in forever. My breasts are rock hard with milk. I probably have mastitis 
my kid will not stop crying. And no matter what I do, she's not happy or he's not happy. And I'm failing at this. And I think not everybody, but I think a lot of mothers can identify with that. Like, what the hell did I get myself into? And I'm not doing this right. And like, what if I just flew away and went to get coffee by myself and just never came back? I think that's a pretty human response, you know, just because you're just like, this is so hard. Um, So I dug into those two kind of twin feelings to be able to get to lead into what ultimately happens. Yeah, no, I see that throughout the text. So I always try to close with just like little questions to get at little snapshots that maybe we haven't talked about. These first ones are just multiple choice. Okay, you pick one. Okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? Beach. Dogs or cats? Oh, dogs. I, I No offense to your listeners, but I just am allergic to cats and I just really don't like them. <laughs> it's just I, probably, I probably lost like 10,000 potential <laughs> readers right there. There's, there's Sorry. There's now. They're out. Um, <laughs> are you an early bird or a night owl? Early bird. Um, and now let's do a few California-specific questions. Um, surfing or stand-up paddleboarding? Neither. <laughs> I thought that might be the case. Can I, I like, uh, I don't like sports that you have a lot of t- uh, equipment for. I just like the body. I like a body surfing. Can we say body oh, surfing? okay. We'll allow it. All right. SPF 15 or SPF 100? SPF 100. I'm very, very <laughs> pale. Um, would you rather drink an $11 smoothie made of matcha, aloe, and tea tree oil or... Drink an $11 smoothie consisting of acai, goji berries, and cacao nibs. Uh, I'll go with the acai <laughs> and the cacao nibs. I think tea tree oil sounds like <laughs> you might be drinking your lotion. It looks so gross to me. I looked those up from one of my favorite, like, just hippy-dippy smoothie bars. Yeah. I used to, like, hate myself for going into, but, oh. Totally. It was so good. Um, all right. For people who are not there, um, what's a better tourist trap destination? Um, driving to the observatory or hiking to the Hollywood sign? Ooh, that's a good question. I think I think people, I would say go to the observatory because it's just easier to get to and you can um, – there's just beautiful views up there and you get to go to Griffith Park, which I think is always beautiful. The uh, The Hollywood sign, you can't really get up next to it. So I think it ends up being confusing and maybe like a little disappointing. Yeah, um, I would agree there. All right. Uh, which movie would you prefer that's California based? The movie musical La La Land or um, the old film Rebel Without a Cause? I did not like La La Land, but I haven't seen Rebel Without a Cause. What? We are recently. I know, I know. I, you know, I have seen the Paula Abdul video uh, with Keanu Reeves, I believe. That's like a homage to Rebel Without a Cause. And that takes place at the observatory, too. No. I'm, again, cue all those people canceling their orders for my book. Now I'm questioning if you even live in California. I know. I'm. You know what's so funny? I have uh, people are always like, "What books do you pretend you haven't read?" And I don't usually do that. I just admit if I haven't read something, but I often just lie and say I've seen many movies because, mm-hmm. like, until my kids watched it, I was like, "I've never seen Star Wars." You know, I just have not seen a lot of famous movies. This is why we ask. Um, another one: Are you a risk taker, or are you the person who always knows where the band aids are? Uh, I'm probably a little bit of both. 
I'm I'm risk averse in some ways, but I also don't like overthink things in that way. So I'm, I know I'm supposed to have an answer. I guess I know where the Band-Aids are. <laughs> Good stuff. These last few are uh, fill in the blank. So the first one is, if I wasn't working as a writer slash writing teacher and maybe I had a little magic, I would be a... Midwife. I would be a midwife. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Except I'm not an except as I said I'm not a night owl and a lot of babies are born in the middle of the night so that's not ideal. You would be a daytime midwife. Yeah, (laughs) a midwife (laughs) with very short hours. I don't think I'd get a lot of clients. You'd be part of a a group, a part of a a, yeah. Fair enough. Um, What is um, a like or a love or a pet peeve? Something that people either get wrong about you or they just don't know about you what's one of those well people spell my name wrong exhibit a i spelled your name wrong in our first paper exhibit a i swear to god i don't remember that but my name is spelled e-d-a-n which is an anagram of my grandmother's name which was edna ah okay Hmm, interesting now i'm we're all going to be calling you edna oh (laughs) because is eden the the mirror is that e-d-e-n like the the place with the fruit? Yes. I don't even see it. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Last two. What's your favorite ice cream? Mint chocolate chip. Although I will say, just because this is very important content, I have recently discovered that I do sometimes like chocolate ice cream with a little Malden sea salt on top. That's really good. <laughs> That's a very California woo-woo. Put some acai on top of that. Not good. And tea tree oil. Which doesn't sound good at all. Uh, Last one. If we were to take a picture of you really joyful and doing something you love, what would we see? Um, You would probably, if it was an X-rated picture, I'd be reading in the bath. (laughs) If it was not X-rated, it would be dancing. I'm picturing woman number 17 now, and I'm like looking over your shoulder and wondering what's in the background. And if there was like, I don't know, a candy wrapper on the counter, or I'm thinking about the way the snapshots are yes, in that book. The, exactly. All the detritus of life as you dance around. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, Eden, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. You know, one of your like supporting cast characters says, we all need a little mischief. And so thank you for bringing your mischief to our recording studio today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. And I, um, you're better interview yourself when your book comes out. Oh, I like this. Wishful thinking. <laughs> what, seven years for Time's Mouth? I am, I'm on a solid trajectory there. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, our guest today has been Eden Lepucky. Um, she's got three books that I've read. I can, I can just like recommend all of them. California, Woman Number 17, and her most recent one, which will be out now at the time of your hearing this, Time's Mouth. You can find it at your local library or an indie store near you. To everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.